As Earth Keepers, we hold wisdom about our planet within our bodies learned through lifetimes of experience on Earth and throughout the cosmos. I'm Amy Dempster, a shamanic practitioner and your host for the Earth Keepers podcast, and I'm on a journey to reconnect with my soul family, the other Earth Keepers, grid workers, portal tenders, land stewards, and nature lovers around the world. On this podcast, you won't find gurus or dogma, just a safe space where I share personal stories from my spiritual journey. Welcome back to the Earth Keepers podcast. This season, we're taking a journey through one branch of my own family tree to explore what happens when a group of people leave the only land they've ever known for the promise of salvation and eternal life in heaven. If you've just discovered the podcast and haven't listened to the earlier episodes in this season, I highly suggest you go back and listen to them first, as each episode in this season builds on the one before. The last two episodes have been a deep dive into more ancient religious beliefs, rituals, and traditions, and now finally it's time to shift to the specific land of my ancestors, Scandinavia, and more specifically, Sweden. Because we need to understand who these people were and what was happening in their lives that resulted in tens of thousands of Swedes packing up their belongings and their families and setting sail for the new world. I mean, that couldn't have been an easy decision. Most people don't leave their homes behind for lands unknown at the drop of a hat. They knew they'd never be able to return to the only place they'd ever known, the only place their ancestors had ever known. So what happened? Well. Before we get there, let me just say that if this season is inspiring you to go deeper on your own journey with your ancestors and the spirits of the land, I'd love to have you join me in the Earth Tenders Academy. The Earth Tenders Academy is my online course and community where you can learn more about the history and energy of the community that you live in, hold space for the healing of humanity and nature, remember more about your specific gifts and role with the earth, and see the true magic held in your everyday environment. I invite you to step into this portal with me and hundreds of other Earth Tenders from around the world. Click the link in the show notes to learn more about the Earth Tenders Academy and join us in this beautiful community. Okay, so now let's go back to ancient Scandinavia. Because Scandinavia wasn't conquered and colonized in the same way many other European countries were. The old ways lived on in these frigid northern climates longer than in the warmer latitudes. And Frigid it was. But shortly after the end of the last ice age, as the ice receded and land was revealed, humans started moving into and settling the coastlines of this part of the world. It may have been dark and cold, but the settlers in this region were able to travel by boat and trade with the warmer regions further south to get the meat, produce, and supplies that they needed. And as Wilhelm Moberg points out in his book, A History of the Swedish People, This was not the land of milk and honey, and certainly no promised land. He wrote, It offered little enough bread, let alone milk and honey. For the most part, it was grimly inhospitable. Its soil was littered with stones and boulders and exceedingly hard to cultivate. Its dense forests were terrifyingly large. Its distances were endless. Summer was fleetingly brief, winter insufferably long, and the cold tormentingly severe. 
as long as the sun stayed away, human beings spent their lives in dark holes and huts, lit only as far as they could keep its flames alive by their fire. In the long midwinter darkness, seized by an irresistible longing for the great light, they sent up scouts to the highest hilltops to await the great luminary's return. The instant these scouts glimpsed the first beams of light, they hastened down to the valley to announce the wonderful news. In their joy, people invited each other to feast to celebrate the return of light. It was the greatest festival of the year. Now that paints a pretty clear picture of what life was like in early Scandinavia. People subsisted on game from the forest, fish from lakes and rivers, the fruits of trees and bushes like acorns, beech, and hazelnuts. And they lived in huts built from the earth for insulation against the long and brutal winters. Near the end of the Stone Age, about 3000 BC, wandering shepherds arrived in the area following their flocks of sheep, goats, and swine, searching for grazing areas for their animals and dwellings for themselves. And that's when things began to change. Swedish peasant society began as people settled into homes and began growing food. Peasant meaning a person who lives in one place and tills the soil. To their Stone Age ancestors, extracting a living from the land in this way, like agriculture, must have been a revolution in how they lived. Moving from earthen huts to simple timber farmhouses and learning to grow corn and wheat would have been as radical of a shift as it would be for future generations who left the farm for the cities during the Industrial Revolution. But even then, our Swedish ancestors would have depended far more on their cows, sheep, and goats for their meat, milk, butter, cheese, and clothing than their field crops, where a successful harvest was so dependent on the fickle weather. Life and death were ruled by rain, snow, and sunshine. So you can see why two of the biggest events of the year were centered around the sun either its disappearance after the summer solstice or its return at the winter solstice. And for many, many generations, it was more common for Swedes to dwell in the forest on remote solitary farms than it was to live in villages. They were incredibly isolated and self-sufficient. The reason so many Norse fairy tales include a character getting lost in the forest is because that was a very real possibility in these far-flung Scandinavian outposts. Can you imagine the kind of creatures and people you might encounter while traveling for 10 days through the forest to reach the next town? I mean, of course you would bump into fairies and gnomes and trolls on your journey through the enchanted woods. But forest people, of course, took their names from the trees that surrounded them. Bjork was birch. Gron, spruce. Ek, oak. You get the idea. Both the Swedish people and their places found their names in nature. They were the land that they belonged to. And although their farmsteads began as solitary homes cut from the dense forest land around them, as their families grew into larger, multi-generational clans that married between other families in the area, small villages began to be built to accommodate their growing numbers. The survival of the group was of utmost importance, and an individual family member needed the permission of others to marry, move away, sell his land, or undertake any important decision. Early peasant society was highly conformist and dictatorial. If you couldn't tolerate the system, you were free to go into the forest and find your own way. Over 
a thousand years or so, clans formed alliances and federations of tribes, which began to develop into larger units and provinces, which of course would wage war on each other to grow their territory until eventually in the 8th or 9th century AD, the two largest provinces in the East and the West began to merge into a single kingdom that would eventually become Sweden as we know it today. But that old peasant society that was focused around a village was how people lived and died for thousands of years. Living together in a community was good protection against enemy clans, hungry wolves, and criminals. But it also provided for mutual assistance amongst your friends and neighbors. If you were sick, injured, or in danger, there was someone there to help you. There were healers and handymen for every need. Birth, marriage, death, and funerals were all witnessed by the village, as was agriculture, which was a communal effort. In those days, a farmer might have plots scattered in 30 different places, so work had to be coordinated with your neighbors. The cattle were all grazed together on common land. Everyone gathered water from the village well. And all decisions made by the village council the duties of which passed from one villager to another to share in the responsibility of overseeing village accounts, leading the collective work, and settling disputes and keeping order. But to fully grasp village life and its hierarchy, we have to talk about the bondsmen, quite literally men and women in bondage, better known as slaves. In the earliest Norse Eddas, there are poems that constitute an origin story of the people of Scandinavia being born from the same god, but either as free men or bondsmen. While they may have been born of the same father, they were not equal, and whichever lot you were born into is the same one your children would become. So the bondsman's entire function in life was to serve the free man, and As such, he did the heaviest farm labor. Bondsmen had no rights, could own no possessions, carry no weapons, and were simply another piece of property owned by the peasant. Bondsmen could even be sacrificed at feasts, just like animals. And while many of them were born into slavery, many were also brought back to Scandinavia as prisoners of war by the Vikings, and some gave themselves up voluntarily, I guess you could say, to settle their debts. Bondswomen, in particular, were seen as a way to increase a peasant's population of bondsmen by having children with her, who would, of course, become the next generation of bondsmen. They were bought, sold, traded, maimed, and murdered at their master's whim. The same form of colonial slavery found in the United States a thousand years later. And, of course, bondsmen did not go to the same heaven as the freemen. While the free were whisked off to Odin's Valhalla for eternal bliss after death, the bondsmen were instead escorted by Thor to a less blissful heaven. Ah yes, the familiar story of different levels of the afterlife. We humans sure do create a lot of structures to assure us that we won't have to mingle with those who are different from us after death. That being said, It's estimated that approximately 20% of the population may have been in bondage, which means it's likely that many of our ancestors came from both stations in life, free and bonded. So what happened to the bondsmen? 
Well, that's quite the interesting story. Because remember how I said that Christianity came late to Scandinavia? This is how it happened. Now, the first Christian missionary reached Sweden in the 9th century, building a church and having little success in finding converts, which continued for at least 100 years under the efforts of a variety of missionaries to the area. So it wasn't until the 11th century that a ruler converted to Christianity, likely to marry a daughter of a Catholic family, and it was then that the religion became a bit more widely accepted. That being said, I came across an article in my research that said that when missionaries tried to force the idea in the rural villages, they ran into stiff opposition. When one English missionary smashed an image of Thor to demonstrate God's power, he was murdered on the spot. Oops. An article in Christianity Today said, In the Uppsala region, even though it was ruled by King Stenko, a Christian, paganism stubbornly held its ground. The local capital of paganism was the temple in Uppsala, which Adam of Bremen described. It is situated on level ground, surrounded by mountains. A large tree with spreading branches stands near the temple. There's also a spring nearby, where the heathens make human sacrifices. A golden chain completely surrounds the temple, and its roof, too, is covered with gold. The temple housed three gods— Thor, flanked by Odin and Frey, to which priests offered sacrifices. Every nine years, a major ceremony was held, with people from all the Swedish provinces bringing sacrifices. According to Adam, the most distressing feature of this festival is that Christians, too, participate in the sacrifices. Animals and human alike are sacrificed, and their bodies are hung in the trees of a sacred grove that is adjacent to the temple. I'm sure this was quite the shocking sight to the Christian missionaries of the day. Now, in about 1060, King Stenkel made Adelward bishop at Sigtuna. Adelward, an enthusiastic evangelist, traveled about the countryside smashing idols and winning many converts. But when he and another bishop concocted a plan to finish off the opposition by burning down the great pagan temple at Uppsala, Stenkel dissuaded them, feeling that the pagan backlash would hurt the Christian cause. Stenkel's judgment appears to have been correct. A few years later, when his successor, King Inga, the first tried to forcibly end the pagan cult at Uppsala, he was promptly expelled and replaced by his brother-in-law, Swen. Though a Christian, Swen agreed to permit pagan worship. It wasn't until Inga gathered an army, defeated Swen, and imposed Christianity in the region that public pagan rituals at Uppsala ended in about 1110. But they continued privately for many generations. For centuries in Sweden, there was a merging of religious beliefs and practices. Polytheism was not adverse to permitting another god into its pantheon. Pagan Vikings had sent offerings of thanks to St. Germain near Paris and to St. Patrick in Ireland for successful raids. Before one important battle, a Swedish Viking army in Cortland cast lots and determined that Christ was the god who could help. When they won, they gave thanks by fasting for 47 days in Christ's name, with no plan to convert to the religion. And we'll get to the Vikings soon but it goes to show how the idea of worshiping many gods and goddesses could easily work in a Christian god to their existing beliefs, while Christianity had no room for multiple gods. 
But what does this have to do with the bondsman? Well, in 1335, the newly crowned King Magnus Eriksson set out on a tour of the realm, where each province could give their oath of loyalty to the new king. And on reaching Skara, he issued a famous speech where he decreed, To the honor of God and the Virgin Mary, and for the repose of our fathers and uncles' souls, we do decree it as right and lawful that no man and woman, born of Christian man or woman, evermore shall be bondsman or bondswoman, nor bear that name. For as God hath saved us from heathen and heathendom, so hath he also saved them. So clever. I mean, why force people into Christianity when you can so easily do it by royal decree? What King Magnus said there was that Christians could not be bondsmen or bondswomen. A few years earlier, in another Swedish province, King Berger forbade all trading in baptized persons. So by allowing bondsmen to take communion, the church would recognize them as human beings and, most importantly in their eyes, Christians. And once they were Christians, they could not be slaves. Within one generation of receiving the sacrament, bondage disappeared, and Christianity became the rule of the land. I mean, you have to give it to the church. They figured out how to get a fifth of the Swedish population to convert to Christianity overnight, without a fight. Who among the slaves was going to argue with the church's offer to free their bodies in exchange for their souls? Now, it's possible that there were other contributing factors to the end of slavery in Scandinavia, because it's a bit hard to believe that these provincial kings wouldn't have had a lot of opposition to this idea from the rest of the nobility and landowners. You know, the same way plantation owners in the southern U.S. states oppose the end of slavery. There was a civil war fought over that idea. But it's possible that the economics of keeping large numbers of bondsmen just wasn't penciling out anymore. It was difficult to supervise that many workers, and they had to be fed and housed year-round, even when there was little or no work to do. It would have made more sense for the large estates to pay the labor force for the few months a year that they were needed and then lay them off. And so the beginning of Christianity in Sweden meant that bondage was outlawed and the class system began. The laws immediately shifted to distinguish between those who could pay taxes, aka landowners, and everyone else. And if you fell into the everyone else category of non-landowners, you were classified as a servant and your labor was required. You were considered a vagrant if you refused to go into service, and the punishment was to be whipped and lose your ears. Seriously. And let's be honest, the heavy labor of the bondsmen and bondswomen still had to be done by someone. And these compulsory service laws prevailed right up to the 20th century in Sweden. It wasn't until 1805 that servants were allowed to have a say in negotiating their wages. And as late as 1885, the final Vagrancy Act said that if you'd passed your 21st birthday and had no means to support yourself, you could be forced into labor. The saying, he who won't work shan't eat, was sometimes referred to as the 11th commandment in Sweden. So at this point, I'm sure you're getting a pretty good idea of what it was like to live in rural Sweden for a thousand years or more. Never mind just a few of the reasons people would have been eager to escape the class system and compulsory servitude in Sweden to try their luck on the American frontier. 
But before we get there, let's go back to the Vikings. Because as a group, their reputation definitely still precedes them, even a thousand years after their final colonizing raid ended. And here's the thing about the Vikings. Most of us know the basics, a bunch of seafaring warriors who raided mainly coastal locations in the British Isles. Famous for being raiders, traders, and settlers, these primarily Scandinavian men were leaving their homes in the dark, snowy north to find riches among the more civilized communities further south, making their lands a great power, the most feared in Europe. They made landfall from the far east to North America. They captured London, Paris, and forced Russia into submission. The people of Europe regarded these pagans as the scourge of God. But there were a few things that surprised me about the Vikings that I stumbled across in my research. Historian Wilhelm Moberg asked in his book, how did it come about that the Swedish peasant could have become a Viking? Throughout history, the Scandinavian peasantry was known as a quiet and peaceful group, resorting to violence only when obliged to defend their land or themselves against an enemy. So how then did the three Scandinavian countries with less than a million people between them become the most feared group of plundering murderous pirates on earth? Well, there's a few theories on that, although there's no solid evidence or written records. But first, the Norse were extraordinary shipbuilders. Their dragon ships, a combination of sail and oar, carried them over the high seas at speeds that couldn't be replicated nearly a thousand years later. A Viking dragon ship could be at sea, regardless of waves and weather, for a month without needing to come into harbor. When a replica was built by modern Norwegians, they were able to cross the Atlantic in four weeks. Compare that to a 19th century Swedish immigrant ship my ancestors would have been on. That journey took 10 weeks to sail from Sweden to New York. These 9th century peasants, perhaps without chart or compass and with no fancy schooling, figured out how to build the fastest and most stable boats of the day and sailed much further from land than any of their contemporaries. Their boats stayed afloat in as little as three feet of water, allowing them to navigate up and down smaller waterways, easily sneaking up on the villages they sought to plunder. And so, there was certainly the opportunity for glory and honor for those who joined the ranks, along with the possibility of riches found in the wealthier lands. If a peasant had many sons, only the firstborn would inherit the farm. Although large areas of Sweden were still uncultivated, the remaining lands were the least fertile and most difficult to farm, especially with the primitive farming tools of the day. So a free life on the ocean with the possibility of finding riches of one's own or land in a warmer climate may have been a much more tempting offer than to remain a peasant in a snowy, dark Scandinavia. Religious beliefs also likely played a part in the decision to take to the high seas, where danger lurked around every corner. Because the Viking afterlife was in Valhalla. There was no heaven or hell, good place or bad place, celestial kingdom or outer darkness. There was only one place, and every Viking who fell was to go there. Valhalla was the hall of slain warriors, under the care of god Odin. Valhalla is a beautiful palace, roofed with shields where the warriors feast on the flesh of a boar slaughtered daily and made whole again each evening. 
they drink liquor that flows from the udders of a goat, and their sport is to fight one another every day. So not such a bad place to go when you die. Never mind that to die in battle was the most honorable death, because their religion taught them to scorn death. They were fearless warriors, assured of the paradise that lay ahead of them in the afterlife. But for those who didn't die, many became immigrants to new lands, or more accurately, colonizers. After leaving their cold, harsh northern lands, they found the sunshine and often decided to stay. Many accounts were that they set up homes and families, taking multiple wives. Polygamy was common in Scandinavia peasant society, but the Christians considered this a heathen plague upon their lands. Sounds pretty similar to what happened when the Mormons moved to new towns in America a thousand years later. But not all of the Vikings were full-time professional barbarians. Every spring, the men in the villages organized themselves to join the Seafaring League of Vikings, spending their summers on the dragon boats, sailing to the lands beyond the seas for what they believed to be their rightful loot and inheritance. When they returned in the fall, if they returned in the fall, all of the real work of the farm was already done for the season, which means that the sowing, growing, and harvesting work to sustain each family was done by the men who were too old to be raping and pillaging, along with the women, children, and bondsfolk. The bulk of the farm work labor was planned, directed, and shouldered by the women and slaves at home. Every spring for 250 years, the head of the household and his able-bodied sons left the farm, their wives, and small children to seek glory and riches on the high seas. And if they did not return, it was unclear if it was because they had gone to Valhalla or just decided to stay behind in some foreign land and start a new home and family. So as with many other times in history, while many stories have been written about the Vikings, little is known about what the women were doing while the men were away. And while the chores of the farm, looking after small children, and making up meals likely made up the bulk of their days, I can imagine this is how a female-centric society would have been cultivated in the villages, especially during these summer months. Women would have filled the roles as healers, spiritual advisors, spellcasters, and diviners, in addition to handling much of the home and farm work. After all, the men were away. These needs wouldn't have stopped while they were gone. But just like in World War II, when the women were needed to come into the workforce in droves to fill the roles the men had left behind, the culture of the 1950s then had to push them all back into their homes when the men came home as if they hadn't just kept an entire country functioning for five years. If you remember when we talked about Medusa in episode 72, she was beheaded in the myths around the time that the popular cosmology was shifting from a worldview where everything is born of a sacred mother deity to a patriarchal society where our source was from Father God. Now, around this same time, the Norse had a goddess called Jord. Jord is an obscure and seldom-mentioned giantess and goddess in North mythology. She plays no active part in the tales whatsoever, and is referenced only in passing as being the mother of Thor and the daughter of Night. However, Thor's mother has a variety of other names throughout Eddic and Skaldic poetry. Those names, like Jord, all mean Earth. So in all likelihood, what's being said is that Thor is the son of an earth goddess, but not necessarily any one specific earth goddess. 
he was born of the earth. The idea that femininity and the earth are intrinsically connected, as are masculinity and the sky, was one of the most basic and common ideas throughout European and Scandinavian mythology. The union of the sky god and the earth goddess, which maintains the cosmic order and bestows prosperity on the land as it's fertilized by the sun and the rain, is often referred to as a hero's gamos, or divine marriage. One example of the hero's gamos is the union between Thor and his wife, Sif. Sif's most noted attribute is her long flowing blonde hair, which is meant to be understood as a field of grain ripe for the harvest. Thor, whose name means thunder, is the animating spirit of the storm, whose rain fertilizes the fields. And so here again, like we explored in last week's episode, we see this marriage of masculine and feminine, heaven and earth, as needed for the survival of crops, trees, animals, and humans. The contributions of the earth goddesses were no less important than the contributions from the sky gods always needed to hold the life in perfect balance. And this reminds me of my conversation with author and researcher Max Dashu back in season two. She's spent decades researching the contribution of women in society that has been heavily censored or erased, often by the church or religion of the moment. Her book, Witches and Pagans, which I'll link in the show notes, is a wealth of knowledge about women's healing work in these years between 700 and 1100. She writes extensively about the Norse Volur, the best documented tradition of female spiritual leadership in medieval Europe. The Volur, or the singular Volva, means staff woman, named for the female shamanic wand that has been well documented in literature and archaeology. The Volur were associated with prophecy and ecstatic ceremony known as Seder. The women who led these ceremonies held the power to predict the future, control the weather and seasons, harm or heal humans, and expel public enemies. They accessed these powers while in a trance state induced by chanting, and my guess was that the chants weren't the only thing giving them the power to access altered states of consciousness. It would make sense that plant medicine was also involved in these ceremonies. And while these women were called upon to give prophecies, some of their most important work was in securing the survival of large groups of people. Stories about the Valor include filling the waters with fish by means of magic, or conducting ceremonies to secure staple foods during times of need. The Valor would have been an important intermediary between the sky and the earth, and conjuring particular weather conditions would have been a valuable skill in a climate with such a short growing season. These Seder ceremonies must have been quite the show. The Volor would have been perched on a raised platform, holding her ritual staff, surrounded by a chorus of 15 maidens and 15 lads, who would sing the incantations, or songs, that would enable the vulva to enter a trance state and communicate with the spirits. As she reached the peak trance state, she would sing her prophecies to the people of the village who were gathered around. You can see why the Christian church forbade these songs to be sung, and why the staff was the first tool to be prohibited when the religion was gaining momentum in Scandinavia. But these volor were traveling prophets. They moved from place to place, holding ceremony and prophesying for the people. Each household received the volor with honors, 
greeting her respectfully. Her hosts would lead her to a high seat with a cushion and would ask her to cast an eye over his flock, his household, and his homestead. Then she was offered a meal that included the hearts of all of the animals available there so that she could taste the essence of the land. She would then spend the night so she could dream with the spirits of the land in this particular location. The following day, she would ask for the women who knew the incantations needed for the ceremony, and she would be able to carry out the prophecies. Afterwards, each person could go up to the Cirrus and ask their own personal questions. You can see why the vulva was the most powerful person in the heathen society. Her power of prophecy and conjuring was more revered than the power of kings and warriors. There's even some evidence that the root of the word heathen comes from the name of a well-known vulva. As these ceremonies tended to take place in the winter months, I can see how after a busy but short summer growing and pillaging season, where families were separated and the fate of the family for the coming cold and dark season had already been decided based on the success or failures of their respective ventures, the desire to see into the future would have been strong. Would a peasant woman's husband or boys who had not yet returned be coming back? Would a sick or injured family member recover? Was there enough food or money stashed away until next summer? Would their village be safe from attacks from outsiders? The importance of her answers to their questions could not be understated, and I'm sure it was seen as critical information to receive for the coming year. The vulva didn't just look into the future for answers. She could shape the outcome with her magic. And these ceremonies were purely female acts and powers. Even Odin was known to come to her for prophecy. So you can see how important it was for the Christian church to topple this feminine spiritual chokehold on the people of Scandinavia. And as tempting as it might be to romanticize these women and their powers, we have to see them as yet another example in history where people have handed their own sovereign power over to someone outside of themselves. What if the Volor said your sick child was going to die? or your fields would be overcome by pests that would destroy it in the coming year? How did your energy and attention shift as a result of that prophecy? Again and again, over time, we see our ancestors look to someone in a position of power to give them the answers about their lives and deaths. Never believing or being allowed to believe that the most powerful magic is the kind that they create for themselves. So I'll leave you with that thought for the week. And a challenge to look around and see where we're doing this in our current culture and lives. Why do we find ourselves to be any less powerful to create the future we want to see? Where are we handing our power over to someone outside of ourselves to conjure a future of their making rather than conjuring the one we want to see? Important questions, I think, if we want to learn the lessons of our ancestors and apply them to our present day lives. So, Thanks for listening this week. Thanks for being here on the earth at this moment in time. And I'll see you back here next Tuesday. Thank you. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for listening to the Earth Keepers podcast. I'm so honored to share this journey with you. I would love it if you join me and other Earthkeepers from around the world in the Following Hawks Earthkeepers community on Facebook. 
to find the show notes, additional resources, or learn more about working with me, go to earthkeeperspodcast.com. Until next time, I'll see you in the multiverse.